Welcome to episode 17 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China's global influence and its economic growth are in large part due to its relationship with developing countries. They're critical in supplying natural resources and means of energy. They also make promising markets for goods exported from China. And with the trade comes political links. And in many parts of the world, such as Southeast Asia and Central America, China finds itself in competition for influence with the United States and its allies. Today, we're going to be discussing what guides China to build partnerships with developing countries, who gains as a result, and the geopolitical implications. I'm delighted to welcome back to our podcast, Stephen Chan, Professor of World Politics at SOAS. Stephen, could you say something about how China finances its operations in developing countries? Is it forcing these nations to borrow Chinese money in return for investment? Well, you've had various stages of Chinese penetration of the emerging world, and these different stages are accompanied by different financial models. Uh, The current model is, of course, very, very much bank-based, which is very much to do with providing finance on a loan basis uh, with reasonable terms and conditions, although, of course, there's the danger of escalating indebtedness because a bank is a bank and needs to be repaid. This is not the same model as earlier stages of the Chinese diplomatic and economic penetration of the emerging world, particularly Africa. But no one's forcing anyone to do anything. In other words, these things are on offer. It's a temptation, however, to the countries that wish to take out huge sequences of loan monies from China as an easy fix. And of course, the temptation is to imagine that they won't have to pay it back, that day of reckoning will never come. I think there's been a rude awakening already on the part of many countries that indeed they're going to have to pay it back. But it's not unlike the debt crisis that many countries entered with Western banks and Western lenders uh, some decades ago. Uh, This incurred huge indebtedness on the part of emerging countries. Can't see any way out of that. Now, having said that, even if the Chinese lost all of their investment, let's say it was never repaid, they can withstand that. When you look at the size of their reserves, and by that I mean both their domestic and their foreign reserves, our estimate is that you're sitting on top of reserves equally divided between domestic and foreign of about 60 trillion US dollars. That's more reserves than any other country indeed, group of countries on Earth. Do you think now, though, that leaders on the African continent and elsewhere, having heard a lot about this uh, warning of debt diplomacy, they may now be more reluctant to take on debts from China because they realise it could be a struggle to repay the loans? Well, as I say, you've got some recklessness. Take Zambia, for an example. This year is election year. The president is gunning for re-election. And he's basically running on a ticket that he's developing the country. And the only way that he can give evidence that he's developing the country is by huge infrastructural projects, QN loans from all over the world, including the IMF, for instance. There's a significant debt to the IMF, significant debt to private bondholders upon which they've defaulted, and an even larger debt to the Chinese. 
Now, how they're going to repay all of this, not just to the Chinese, but to everyone else, is a big question. I think there's another important consideration, as well as the finances, and that's the conditions under which some of these infrastructure projects, uh, the development of natural resources, the way in which they're carried out. Because I often hear that there's a degree of resentment about the working conditions, uh, particularly over the ratio of local workers to the people who come in from China to help. Can you say something more about that? It's basically been a long-standing Chinese model, no matter which historical epoch you're looking at, that for projects in which they're heavily invested, particularly infrastructural and construction projects, uh, transport projects, for instance, your standard Belt and Road projects, they're going to want to bring in a very significant proportion of the workforce from China. Uh, this is because they think that they'll be able to be more efficient with Chinese workers who understand the plans and the deadlines. Uh, there's also still a slight, let us say, condescension towards the work habits and the work discipline of, for instance, African workers. There's a slight degree of racism, which has to be very, very much part of the picture here. But basically, the Chinese are very anxious once they've undertaken a project, particularly of a public nature, public infrastructural goods, that they're going to deliver it on time. They're going to deliver it according to the quality that was specified and agreed. And in order to do this, they'll bring in their own workers. Now, I don't think that's so much the problem. The problem is that when they do that, there's no technology transfer. In other words, whatever the proportion of local to foreign workers, the local workers are generally not being taught how to do these things by themselves, how to maintain these things by themselves. So I think the resentment should be more rightly placed upon this paucity of technology transfer rather than the ratios of who comes from where. Do you think there's any significant difference in the way that China approaches projects in Africa compared to how it operates in other parts of the world, for example, Southeast Asia? Well, basically what you've got in terms of Southeast Asia is because you've got significant Chinese populations, uh, you have, let us say, slightly greater care in how they approach their projects. Just move it slightly uh, out of Southeast Asia to South Asia, for instance, one of the key pivot points of the Belt and Road Initiative and its literal infrastructural transport form. And you'll see familiar mistakes. In other words, very little, as it were, sympathy, empathy, or understanding of local political problems. So that some of the road networks that the Chinese proposed to build through Pakistan, and the Chinese seemed blithely unaware that they were basically building this road and railway network through rebel territory. Uh, how they were going to be able to do that uh, without all kinds of difficulties in terms of security, all kinds of possible risks to the local population, all kinds of difficulties for the central government as opposed to the provincial governments that were seen as perhaps uh, sympathetic uh, to the rebels. None of that, as it were, political due diligence was done by the Chinese. So they seem to approach many of these things with a lack of imagination in terms of the consequences, in terms of the social fabric of the population that is going to be affected. So in South Asia, as in Africa, slightly more sympathy and empathy in Southeast Asia because of a higher percentage, of course, of people of Chinese descent. In that answer, you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. 
the BRI, as it's often called. This is the big worldwide infrastructure investment program that China is trying to partner with in many different countries. But people sometimes talk about China's BRI creating a debt crisis. What's your view on that? There's plus and minuses in this. I mean, there's a literal belt and road of a continuous nature that they envisage from China right through to Turkey, for instance, basically following the old Silk Route. But then the term, the Belt and Road Initiative, is applied to infrastructural projects around the world that don't necessarily join up. The realization the Chinese have got to be able to take on board is it's not just a Belt and Road. There are people involved. Now, they'll say they take that on board. Uh, in the Congo, for instance, they're prepared to build not just schools and clinics as the Westwood along the entire route of the Belt and Road. They're prepared to put in full-scale hospitals and universities. Would not every parent anywhere in the world want to send their children to a university? Why does it have to stop at primary school, which is where it stops in most Western plans? So the Chinese would say we do have a social vision of upliftment, but that doesn't come necessarily with sensitivity to the particularities of local living conditions. So there's a good point there, isn't there, which is that the Chinese often emphasise what they call their altruistic behaviour, working towards a global good, the common human interests, as they might put it. But where's the balance between that and making good business deals? Basically, it's creating goodwill. You're paying forward now for benefits to come. Now, this is risky because governments change. So the Chinese have already lost some putative allies because of government changes. But the paying forward strategy seems to work because many people mistake this. The Chinese need Africa's energy resources now. Actually, they don't. They want to have a command of it for the future when they've basically predicted that their own industrial needs are going to grow to a certain point. That's when they're going to cash in. Right now, a very great deal of the oil sent from, say, Angola to China doesn't get to Angola, doesn't get to China at all. It's sold on the Amsterdam spot market. The Chinese get a bit of cash. Obviously, that's always very, very welcome. But it's not as if they're dying for that source of energy at this moment in time. So they're paying forward for getting benefits in the future. There's nothing left of the old socialism and communism. <laughs> this is out and out naked, rancid capitalism. And not only that, but it's an alternative capitalist globalism uh, in which the Chinese feature as the lead players. When people say that globalism, globalization is dead. Oh, no way. It's just being taken over by somebody else. What do you think then when you hear this narrative from the Chinese side that China is at last taking up investment opportunities in developing countries which have been missed or overlooked by Western countries? Well, that's true. But as I say, the Chinese do so with risk. Governments change. They may not get an immediate return on their investment and they may have to play some hardball to get, as it were, repayment or undertake a great deal, as I said, of restructuring uh, the West has been risk adverse for quite a number of years, and so this has left the field open uh, to the Chinese. But having said all of that, if the Chinese had to make a choice, for instance, in terms of economic influence in Africa and economic influence in Europe, they would choose economic influence in Europe. And if you look at their strategies, the amount of leverage they've bought particularly from 2008 onwards, our banking crisis in the West, 
they brought up so much toxic debt, for instance, in the United States of America, that their leverage in the US economy is profound. And they did something of the same, but on a smaller scale in Europe, because we were part of the banking crisis as well. Do you think there are any other implications, positive or negative, of China's growing presence in developing regions of the world? No, they're just one more player in a long line of players. You know, we let off on this, Western colonialism and imperialism, which imperialized China as well, about the same time as the West was colonizing Africa. So the Chinese would basically take a sympathetic view, at least in rhetorical terms, to the plight of African countries, saying that we also went through something like this. As I say, the ownership of globalization is changing. That itself is a key aspect of this dynamism. But precisely because it's a dynamic period, nothing can be given a settled judgment at this moment in time. So let's conclude today's conversation by imagining that we're joined in the audience by ministers from several developing countries. What's your advice to them in the way that they deal with China? Learn to speak Chinese. And I'll tell you why, it's very simple. I've negotiated in Beijing on the side of African Union delegations. The Chinese were astounded that another Chinese person, although a very strange looking one, was sitting with the Africans. Basically, the front of table negotiations are the formality. All of the real work is done in the bilaterals behind the scenes. All the gossip is done in Chinese. And so in order to be able to understand fully the negotiating strategies of the other side, the African side really have got to learn how to do Chinese, pick up the small talk, learn the nuances. Now, if you've got bankers all through Wall Street sending their children to schools to learn Mandarin, and the West knows that this is the trick for the future. Now, I'm of Southern Chinese extraction. Uh, we think that Mandarin is a very, very, let's say, unpoetic language. Cantonese is, of course, the language of playwrights, poets. We had our own Shakespeare's, et cetera, et cetera. So we rather regret this, but for very much chauvinistic regional reasons. But learning Chinese is going to be a very key requirement. And by that, I mean Mandarin Chinese. It's going to be a very key requirement for, let us say, prospering in the negotiations of the future. Well, thank you, Stephen. I have to say that my own efforts to master Mandarin in my 40s and 50s have been something of a struggle, shall we say. So I'm very grateful to people who can explain China in context to me in English. That was Stephen Chan, and this podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute. You can find out more about our activities on our website. The website is SOAS, that's soas.ac.uk. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast.